in this highly globalized world, sovereignty has been regarded by some as not important. Even to discuss redefining sovereignty in the globalized world may be controversial. Perhaps we can come to the traditional concept of sovereignty and then make a comparison between the traditional sovereignty and the sovereignty in the globalized world. Traditionally, when we talk about sovereignty, it has several dimensions. First is the internal affairs jurisdiction. In other words, to what extent sovereign states may regulate, may govern, may manage their internal affairs. For that, I think, first of all, we should be aware, we should be clear that according to traditional sovereignty, all states have the absolute power, have the absolute authority to determine their political and legal structure, political and legal system. And that would include, first of all, the legislative power. In other words, every sovereign state is authorized, is empowered to enact laws, to enact laws relating to the procedures, to the substance, to the enforcement procedures. All the contents of the laws, enforcement standards, enforcement procedures, enforcement measures, should and must be decided by the states. Secondly, sovereignty empowers the states to deal with administrative matters. They may establish any kind of administrative bodies. They may determine the authority that an administrative body may have, the standards that a given administrative body may exercise their administrative power. Thirdly, states would have the judicial power. For instance, they may establish any kind of judicial system. They may determine what powers the judicial system may have, what authority it should be given, what principles, standards, that judicial bodies may follow in their adjudication. And these are the powers relating to internal management with regard to external relations. Again, in accordance with the traditional principle and concept of state sovereignty, states should have complete power in managing their external relations. That power, of course, is to a large extent in theory. And even for that, we may say that state authorities, sovereign states, may decide what treaties they want to conclude, what agreements they want to conclude what obligations 
they may assume. At the same time, states again in theory are authorized to take self-defense. For that, it is common knowledge that in practice, many states may not have the power, may, have, may not have the ability to take self-defense, even though they are authorized to determine themselves as to what method, what measures they may use in taking self-defense. And of course, again in relation to foreign relations, sovereign states may decide themselves as to what economic exchanges they may carry out. They may decide with whom they want to have foreign cooperations, they may want to have economic collaborations, and they may also decide whether they want to use economic power as a means for retaliation. And they may also decide to what extent they may take the retaliation. Again, in practice, countries, a lot of countries, may not have that ability. But at least in theory, they are entitled to do so. Then, the question is, in this globalized world, may sovereign states exercise that power, may exercise sovereignty to the extent in accordance with the sovereign, traditional sovereignty. In other words, whether states today may do anything in the permit of the traditional sovereignty. Let's first take a look at globalization. What economic globalization mean to us? Internationalization, internationalization or economic globalization is a process. In this process, this whole world is integrated into a small world. And that is globalization. Globalization is a field everywhere. It's a field in our daily life, in every economic sector. For instance, one may live in New York, one may live in Shanghai, one may live in Tokyo. And if you go to those cities, you will see, first of all, there are a lot of shops, a lot of business names which are familiar to the traveler. And you may not even realize that you are in a city of another country. For instance, for people in New York, for people in Shanghai, they may share a lot goods in common. They may be familiar with a lot of names of shops, companies. Also, when we talk about the goods, nowadays 
you go anywhere, you can almost get the kinds of goods you are used to at your home. And that is a part of globalization. That is the effect of globalization. Globalization also happens, also takes place in the market. Previously, we often talk about this market or that market. For instance, Chinese market, American market. Nowadays, it is very difficult to distinguish the prices, the quality of goods from this market to another market. Because globalization has integrated the regional markets, regional markets, national markets into one whole market of the world. In this market, anything happens in one corner of the world will have immediate impact on other parts of the market, meaning the world. Examples are many. The most recent example is the financial tsunami took place in 2008 in the United States. We are still suffering from it. And if you consider the impact, the effect that this tsunami has sent to other parts of the world, it is enormous. And that is the reason why all countries in the world, starting from the United States to Europe, to China, to Japan, to Australia, and so forth, they all take measures. They all take big measures. They all take significant measures because unless they take immediate and big measures, the effect of the financial tsunami could not be overcome. And if you compare this time's financial tsunami with the 1997 Asian financial crisis, there are differences. In Asian financial crisis in 1997, we see that it took place first in Southeast Asia. Then immediately, just like someone has a cold, it affected Japan. It affected from Japan to Soviet Union. Sorry, it, it, it traveled to Russia. From Russia to South Africa. Sorry, it traveled from Japan to Russia, from Russia to South America, from South America to the United States. You could see the, the path of the crisis. And the people had the time to prepare themselves. That's why the 1997 Asian financial crisis did not have too much impact 
for instance, on European countries or on the United States, not mentioning China. Now, in this 2008 financial tsunami, the whole world was affected. And the, it has a lasting effect. The whole world had to do a lot to fight against it. And at this moment, we still do not know how long it may take the governments to overcome this. Also, globalization will affect the decision-making of everybody at all levels. When we talk about state governments taking measures fight against the financial tsunami, we are talking about decision-making power at the state level. But that's not the end. You think about the decision-making by enterprises. Not only transnational companies, but also small and local enterprises. How many of them do not need to consider what may happen in the world? What are happening in the world? when they make their decisions relating to what products they may produce, where to sell their products, how to market their products, and so forth. And this does not only affect industrial sector, it may also affect agricultural sector, service sector, it does not only affect enterprises, it even affects individuals. For instance, for those who want to study abroad, previously they may consider, oh, from this country I want to study here and there, but now they know they have too many choices. They may not need to go anywhere, and they can still acquire a foreign degree they may still acquire the knowledge offered by foreign institutions. So they need to make a decision themselves as to where to go. Do they need to go to study abroad? And if so, what may be the factors that may affect their future? Meaning, after graduation, what are they going to do? Where they can find a better job? What may suit them better? All these are decisions individuals must make. And all these decision makings are affected by globalization. In a word, globalization has made the world small and it will make the world smaller and smaller. And in this regard, it is true that the international community has become a small earth village. And in this village, 
everyone must know others, must know what others are doing. When they make decisions, they must take care. They must first consider what would be the responses from others, so that they can maximize their own power. Their own decision making will be beneficial to them and will have least adverse impact on others. Otherwise, their decision making may not have a long-lasting positive effect on themselves. Having said this, what are the basis for globalization? In other words, what are the conditions for the realization of globalization? Put it the other way. Why, for instance, in the middle of the last century, nobody talked about globalization? Why globalization became a very popular concept toward the end of the 20th century? In my view, one of the important conditions for globalization is international peace. For without international peace, you can't have the economic globalization because we are talking about economic global economic we are talking about economic collaboration we are talking about close economic collaboration in a worldwide way and therefore if countries are fighting with each other you cannot collaborate economically. That's why I think international peace is very, very important and is the essential condition for globalization. Then look at it. What happened in the world? After the Second World War, people may say, yes, after the Second World War, there has been no major war in the world. It is partially true because subsequent to the Second World War, there was a Cold War between the two superpowers, the former Soviet Union and the United States, and each one of them had other sovereign states gathered around as their supporters. When the world was divided by, like that, you could hardly say that there was international peace. Yet, this Cold War came to an end, resulted, I'm sorry, as a result of the dissemination of the former Soviet Union. And that marked the beginning of globalization because it had provided the world with 
the needed condition for further economic collaboration. Another condition I would consider is market economic system. Imagine when the world is divided by countries practicing different economic systems. In other words, while some countries follow the market economy, others practice a planned economy. Actors involved cannot collaborate with each other. We are talking about collaboration at enterprise level. And if you want to collaborate, you want to do business together, you must be doing that in accordance with the same economic principles, with the similar rules. And for that, I think market economic system or adoption of market economic system by the majority of the world players is the second condition for globalization. And for that, we could see that after the dissolution of the former Soviet Union, East countries, East European countries, one after another, adopted the market economic system. Traditional planned economies decided to transform their economy into a market economy. China is an example. Even though they may still claim that their market economy is different from that of others. For instance, in China's case, it says that its economy this market economy is a market economy with Chinese characteristics. But in essence, one can hardly tell the differences between a market economy with Chinese characteristics and a market economy without any characteristics. So this is the second condition for economic globalization. As I mentioned, when you have international peace, when you have more or less a market economic system adopted by the majority of countries, there are conditions needed, but still others are needed. For instance, when countries collaborate with each other, when enterprises, individuals collaborate with each other, they need rules. We may call them laws, we may call them norms. However you call them, such norms must be commonly accepted, commonly recognized, and commonly enforced. So that every player, every actor 
at private level, at government level, they know these are the rules that I must observe. These are the norms that I expect, I anticipate that my counterparts will follow, will observe. And therefore, they can carry out close economic collaboration. So this would be, should be considered as the third condition. In this regard, let's say, how was this condition coming into being? For that, we need to look at international organizations. The example is the WTO or the World Trade Organization. With the establishment of the WTO in 1995, one could see that a lot of international norms emerged into being. WTO does not only cover trade in goods, it also covers trade in services, intellectual property, and also if we look into the specific sectors, they almost cover every important sector of our economy, of our life, starting from agriculture, subsidies by the government, customs evaluation, sanitary and phytosanitary measures, product standards to investment. For all these sectors, you look at any of them, there are plenty of rules, plenty of standards, plenty of norms, for the government, for enterprises, or e even individuals to follow. It is therefore quite evident that with the establishment of the WTO in 1995, the condition for commonly recognized and enforceable norms was created. I would say that in addition to the above three conditions, globalization was also helped with the fourth condition, that is the progress of science and technology. Think what are we surrounded on our daily life. Think. Are we going to feel the same if we are not have access to internet? If we do not have access to mobile telephones? If we do not have access to the convenient communication techniques, communication 
technologies. Also, the progress and development of science and technology, in particular, the internet and information and communication technology, has helped greatly the business transactions. Twenty years ago, when lawyers wanted to deliver the legal opinion from the United States to China, that would take them at least two to three days because the best way to deliver was by speed post or carrier. How long does it take today? It may take three seconds or even less for lawyers to deliver their legal opinion from one end of the Pacific Ocean to the other end. Twenty years ago, business transactions could only be conducted through telephones, mails, or even telexes. But nowadays, most people would conduct their business through the easy internet communications. And because of these developments in science and technology, globalization, globalization has developed so fast, separated national markets, regional markets have merged into one. People from different parts of the world are linked one another. Enterprises from different parts of the world are doing business with one another. Anything takes place in one place will have immediate impact on other parts of the world. Any decision maker at all levels must take into account the possible response from others. Now let me turn to the features of globalization. In other words, what are the manifestations of globalization? Having discussed the conditions or the basis for globalization, when we look at the features, first, I would say interdependence. Interdependence is not something new. For centuries, or even starting from the beginning of mankind, interdependence among the people existed. Without cooperation, without assistance of others, the mankind might not have developed so fast. Yet, globalization has 
intensified this interdependence, in particular, economic interdependence of the mankind. Currently, when we look at this world, can any country survive, develop without the assistance of others? Whether this country is small or big, weak or strong, or even a superpower, it is a fact that in today's world, economic interdependence exists not only among developed and developing countries. It is also between developed countries themselves and developing countries themselves. It also exists among enterprises from countries at the different stages of the economic development. So it is very difficult to say today which country, for instance, is the capital export country, which country is a pure recipient of international direct investment or foreign direct investment. Because countries large and small because countries large and small developed or developing are all receiving foreign direct investments are all making investment abroad. They all do trade with each other. They all provide services to each other. That's why we can say this interdependence is among all countries at all levels, among countries at all economic stages of development. And it covers, of course, all sectors of the economy. And also, as we mentioned earlier, because the markets are linked together to form a world market, any action taken by any actor will contribute to this interdependence. Any move of price in the market will immediately have an impact on the rest of the world, and that also shows the interdependence among the countries concerned. Another feature of globalization is that matters or fears which are traditionally, consider, are traditionally considered as domestic matters, 
domestic affairs of the country now require international assistance. Take for example sustainable development or environment protection. Can any country say that it does not require the assistance of others for the protection of its environment? Because pollution with today's science and technology may travel very fast, may travel from one continent to another, from one country to another. Even the United States, for example, in today's world, subsequent to the financial tsunami, says that in order to recover its economy, it needs assistance of other countries, including developing countries like China. Again, take another example, poverty. Of course, poverty is a human right concern. In the past, people in many countries, in particular the poor countries, suffer. But were they considered as the international issue? Of course, people were concerned. Right? People show their concern to such matters. But the governments were not required to take actions. Nowadays, poverty is an international issue. It's a public good. Because countries are not expected. Countries cannot resolve such issues themselves. They need assistance from others because the markets are linked together now into one market. And in such a circumstance, one cannot expect a single government, a single country to resolve the poverty itself. And of course, there are a lot of other matters we can talk about. How about global warming? Of course, that is an issue that can never be resolved by any particular country without the assistance of others. That shows now the world has to deal with a lot of issues which were considered as domestic in the past. Or in other words, no country can claim as much sovereignty over their own affairs as before. Because, because in this globalized world, a lot of sovereign power, a lot of matters governed or under sovereign power have been taken into international arena. The same is true with traditionally international matters.
Take for example, terrorism. Terrorism, of course, is an international matter, but it requires the cooperation of all the countries. And again, it cannot be dealt with by any particular country, large or small, strong or weak. How about the anti-money launderers? Money laundering, of course, is an international matter. Of course, it requires international collaboration. And in fact, without close international collaboration, this matter can never be dealt with effectively. And then, I may say, and then one may conclude that globalization has imposed much restraints on the traditional sovereignty. And this is the main feature of globalization. Such restraints can be seen in the traditional exercise of sovereign power relating to lawmaking, relating to administration, relating to judiciary, and also relating to the standards that the administration, that the judiciary may exercise when enforcing their own rules or norms. Another feature of globalization is cooperation between international organizations. Of course, international organization is not something new. There have been international organizations before and after the Second World War and even soon after the establishment, I'm sorry, and soon after the creation of mankind. But if we look at today's collaboration and cooperation among international organizations, is very different. First, let's take a look at the so-called three-pillar organization. Soon after the end of the Second World War, the World Bank was established. The International Monetary Fund was established. International World Organization was to be established, but it was not established, and in its place, get or general agreement on trade and the tariffs were established. These three organizations had different roles to play. The World Bank, IMF, have always been regarded 
as a sister organizations. Because these two organizations have very distinct at the same time interrelated functions. IMF, by definition, was responsible for coordinating, supervising the monetary policies, exchange systems, exchange rate systems, and providing financial assistance to the needed countries. Well, World Bank was to provide and is to provide assistance to developing countries. And of course, these two organizations, for long they have been collaborating with each other. They even have annual meetings together. But in today's world, for these two organizations, they have moved from their traditional function. They have moved into the area of trade. Because for international trade, it is believed that the more open the market is, the more liberal the trade is, the countries would benefit more. Yet, for the purpose of liberal, for the purpose of liberalizing trade, some countries may suffer in the short run because they need it. They may need to do economic adjustment. And in order to help countries resolve such difficulties, IMF and the World Bank established a trade integration mechanism to help the free trade. And the purpose and also the effect of this mechanism is to give others a prediction, to give predictability that a given country is going through this economic adjustment for the purpose of liberalizing its trade, liberalizing its trade system. But such cooperation did not take place before. And then if we look at the WTO, IMF, the World Bank, they have even signed an agreement to cooperate, to deal with development issues. And then if you look at the Articles of Agreement of the IMF, you can hardly see that IMF is empowered to deal with development issues. And this shows, I mean, 
even at this stage, that those major players of international organizations, they must cooperate. Even though they may even though they may not function in the same sector of the economy. Cooperation among international organizations can also be illustrated by the fact that um, WTO and World Customs Organization have very close partnership. Take for example the WCO has adopted a set of harmonized system for the classification of goods. And this harmonized system has been used by the WTO. And uh, in practice, for instance, in EC computer equipment case, the pilot body of the WTO stated that the harmonized system together with its explanatory notes must be used by the WTO and they should be used for the determination of classification of goods. In addition, the pilot body held that even the decisions of the WCO committees may be used as a reference when WTO makes reference, makes decisions uh, regarding uh, case dis uh, trade disputes. Let me repeat this. The appellate body also held that the decisions of the committees of the WCO may also be referred to by the WTO in their decision making in relation to trade disputes. WTO and uh, WCO also have a lot of other corporations, including that WCO administers the Customs Valuation Agreement. As we know, this Customs Valuation Agreement is a part of the WTO system, yet it is administered by the World Customs Organization. Also, the World Customs Organization has prepared harmonization rules of origin for the determination of the origin of goods, and such rules are also being used by the WTO. And in other words, they are enforced by the WTO. WTO is not only cooperating with organizations in trade or economic nature. They are also cooperating with international organizations of political nature. The United Nations, for example, has also a set of harmonized system. It has adopted the generalized system of preference. All these rules have been accepted by the WTO as their own rules 
governing the activities of their own members. As we all know, that the United Nations and the WTO have set up the International Trade Center. That center is doing research on trade issues and also doing research on trade policy issues. Needless to say, within the WTO system, a lot of provisions relating to developing countries or developing members, but the WTO agreement has no definition on developing countries. Whenever a member faces the issue of whether it's a developed or developing member, the WTO may need to refer to the United Nations definition of developing countries. Nowadays, a lot of international organizations are observers of the WTO, and this is a new phenomenon in this age of international collaboration or economic globalization. Such collaboration has gone far beyond the sphere of the economy. For instance, the UN Office of Drugs and Crime and World Customs Organization have entered into an agreement for control to control against illicit drug trafficking and organized crimes at the port of Ecuador. It is expected that such cooperation will take place in other sectors as well. Another feature of globalization is the changing role of non-government organizations or the formation of the international civic society. Some time ago, NGOs were not making much significance, were not making the impact in world affairs. Nowadays, no government, no international organization, no individuals who are politicians may ignore the importance of NGOs. If they do, they will run into problems. One would recall what NGO did at the Seattle Ministerial Conference of the WTO. One may recall how NGO successfully defeated another WTO ministerial conference at Cancun. And also, in a number of dispute cases of the WTO, NGOs have expressed their views and their pilot body of the WTO has decided that when the disputing parties receive such opinions, they may, of course, 
submit such opinion or views to the panel or the pilot body. And when NGOs submit their views to the panels, to the pilot body, such disputing settlement bodies not only may look at such views, they must also consider such opinions in their decision making. Of course, whether they take their views or not would be up to the disputing body concerned to decide. But from this, at least we can see that NGOs nowadays can have their views made known and can have an impact, can make a difference even in WTO dispute settlement cases. Of course, one may also recall that it was NGO which made the multilateral agreement on investment fail. In those days, NGOs were not very known. Developed countries were negotiating an agreement on international investment. Soon it was found out by the NGO, and this NGO publicized through internet the draft agreement and which led to the failure of the whole negotiation by the developed countries on the multilateral agreement on investment. And even today, we do not have such an agreement and developed countries even do not want to negotiate such agreement because they are afraid that once it is done, news will immediately travel to every part of the world. With such development, we see another feature of globalization. That is the role of multilateral, sorry, the role of multinational corporations. Multinational corporations used to play a very important role. I'm not saying their role has been reduced, but the relativity of their importance has been reduced. What I mean is, in the past, cross-border transactions, in particular important trade transactions and investment transactions, were done or almost exclusively done by multinational corporations. Nowadays, with the development of science and technology, in particular with the fast development of internet technology, technology of information and communication, a lot of companies, large or small, may engage in cross-border transactions. And they can do so very effectively because the cost of such transactions now is very low. And in the circumstance, we see there are a lot more enterprises engaging in international transactions 
And then, relatively speaking, the role of multinational corporations is reducing in relative term. This is another feature of globalization. Then, the question is, in this process of globalization, to what extent and in what way sovereign powers may be affected, or sovereignty or exercise of sovereignty may be affected. Let's take a look at lawmaking power first. As discussed earlier, according to traditional sovereignty, have the absolute power in lawmaking. Nowadays, against the background of globalization, their power is not absolute anymore. Let's take a look at the WTO agreement. It provides that all members of the WTO must implement the provisions of the agreement and that no reservation could be made. I mean, that is the effect of one single undertaking. That's not all. The WTO agreement does not only provide general principles, it also provides the minimum standards. It also regulates private rights. It also regulating what bodies or what authorities of a given government that it may have. Take for example, judicial review. A lot of countries may not have the system of judicial review. China did not have a judicial review system prior to its joining the WTO. Yet, the WTO agreement requires that the members must have the independent body reviewing the decisions of administrative bodies. It does not say that it must be a court, but as a court has been recognized as a proper body to review administrative decisions, as a result, China decided to give the courts such authority. And of course, in the process of globalization and in the operation of the WTO agreement, for example, other treaties may be incorporated from one agreement into another. In the WTO agreement, trade-related intellectual property is an appendix. Under this agreement, 
other international treaties relating to intellectual property have been incorporated. In other words, once you become a WTO member, you must enforce the TRIPS. And the TRIPS has incorporated the provisions of other international treaties. And whether a given member is a, a party to other international treaties or not is irrelevant. The provisions of other international treaties will apply through TRIPS. Then, with the operation of such treaties, in the last 15 years or so, WTO has held the lawmaking power to have been wrongly exercised or improperly exercised. For instance, in the, 19, in the 1990s of last year, WTO held that the United States Anti-Dumping Act of 1916 to be a violation of the WTO agreement. Remember, that act had been in force for more than 80 years. And once joining the WTO, it, it was held to be inconsistent, incompatible with the WTO agreement. Also, the U.S. Foreign Sales Corporations Act was held to be another violation of the WTO agreement. In the Japan alcohol case, the Japanese tax law was held to be incompatible with the WTO obligations. And of course, in the famous EC banana case, the EC um, import-export system, subsidies system, to be incompatible with the WTO agreement. So these are just some of the examples to illustrate that even to, for members like the United States, EC, Japan, who were active participants in drafting the WTO agreement, were found to have violated such agreement, to have, found, to have been found that their laws to be incompatible with the WTO agreement. That is a very shocking phenomenon. And that's why in the United States, someone even argued that if WTO continue to hold the U.S. laws to be a violation of WTO agreement, the U.S. should withdraw from the WTO. I don't think that will happen, but at least that shows to what extent even scholars were hurt by the holding of the WTO. In the practice of WTO, it also deals with what law may have the ability to violate the WTO provisions and which may not. And this, of course, 
is shocking for everybody. For lawyers, it would be difficult to understand why a law may or may not be in a position to violate the international organization's obligations. WTO appellate body held in the U.S. case again that a law may or may not have the ability to violate the WTO obligations. What will happen? What is the effect of such holdings together with the previous ones in which national laws were held to be in violation of the WTO obligations? That simply means national states, states' lawmaking bodies will have to take into consideration the holdings of the WTO dispute resolution bodies when adopting their own laws. And for those laws which WTO dispute body has held to be violating the WTO obligations, they must be modified or abolished. Otherwise, the country concerned would face retaliations. And also, once the WTO appellate body decided that certain laws may have the ability to violate WTO obligations, while others may not, then when enacting laws, legislative bodies of the members will certainly take that into account so that their laws will be properly made and then they can be properly and easily enforced by their own members, uh, by their own government. In addition to WTO, there are of course other international organizations. I already mentioned the IMF. IMF, for instance, has a provision that the court of every member has an obligation not to enforce a foreign exchange contract that in violation of the foreign exchange regulations of any country. The World Bank, for instance, when lending money to members, always imposes conditions. Such conditions may go from adjustment of economic system to anti-corruption, to protection of minority people, protection of women, children, participation by children, I'm sorry, participation by women in decision-making of the society, and so forth. Take it as a whole. Any member borrowing from the World Bank will be affected in their lawmaking, in their function as a government. I also want to mention, in addition to trade, investment agreements also have a direct impact on the lawmaking of the members of the international community. Bilateral investment treaties, for instance,
all contain standards relating to the treatment of foreign investors, foreign investment also. Such standards include fair and equitable treatment, international minimum standards, national treatment, and so forth. How many people really know what is a fair and unfair treatment? What is equitable and unequitable in practice? And this has a lot to do with the culture, has a lot to do with the stage of economic development. Yet, once such issues are brought to the attention of International Arbitration Tribunal, very often, the arbitration tribunal composed of three individuals will be in a position to decide whether a sovereign government has violated its international obligations and if it is held to have violated its assumed international obligations, unless correction is done, unless compensation is made, the government consent would face very severe penalties. And in order not to do so, in order not to be subject to penalties, government's consent are very likely, and in practice they do, be subject to such holdings of international this, uh, arbitral tribunals decision making. Another area of international investment is Energy Charter Treaty. Even though Energy Charter Treaty is confined to energy area, it has more than 50 countries as parties to this convention. And now it has set very strict standards in treating foreign investments. Almost all the major countries are parties to this treaty or observers to this treaty. They, of course, have very important impact on their decision-making. The treatment of prior investment is an example. Under this Energy Charter Treaty, all the host governments must give national treatment to foreign investors even at the stage before their investment is made insofar as their activities are related to the investment. What if, for instance, a host country does not give such treatment? Then it will be subject to penalties. And also, I already mentioned that both the Energy Charter Treaty and most of the contemporary bilateral investment treaties, as well as free trade agreements, provide for compulsory investor state arbitration, operation of such a provision, state governments may be brought to the international arbitration anytime by an individual, 
but private foreign investor. And this was unthinkable three decades ago. At the moment, even countries like China, which considers sovereignty as a very important issue, have accepted the jurisdiction of international arbitration. And that means they will sub subject themselves to the jurisdiction of an arbitral tribunal composed of three private individuals. And these individuals may decide the fate of such sovereign states. They may decide whether the laws, policies of these governments, treatment, acts, omissions of the government bodies have or have not violated the international standards stipulated in the international treaties, such as bilateral investment treaties. Globalization also has very important impact on the administration of governments. As mentioned earlier, according to traditional sovereignty concept and the principles, sovereign states have the absolute power and authority regarding the function of administrative bodies. At the moment, however, in this globalized world, states do not have such complete power anymore. Take, for example, the classification of goods and services. Traditionally, when we think, governments may decide how to classify their own goods and services. But now, not anymore. In the U.S. gambling case, even the United States argued that it did not intend to open the gambling market, the WTO appellate body held that through the interpretation of the U.S. commitment, the U.S. specific commitment of services together with operation of other documents of the United Nations, the U.S was held to have violated the WTO obligations. And for that, the U.S. government was obliged to correct itself. And of course, in anti-dumping cases, there have been lots of such cases in which the government's administrative bodies were held to have violated the WTO rules. Argentina poultry case is a very interesting example. In that case, the panel held that ex-post rationalization could not be a valid reason for defense. In other words, the administrative body could not 
argue later on that well, it based its decision making on certain facts or rationale. Unless such facts, such reasons were stated in their decision making process. And in that particular case, the Argentine authorities did not written down all in detail such reasons. And then the WTO appellate body, sorry, the WTO panel held that unless you have done so, when you made the decision, when you did the investigation of anti-dumping, you could not use other reasons to justify your action. And consider such holding would have very, very important impact on the behavior of administrative bodies. Because unless they, they act in accordance with the requirement or with the interpretation by the panel and the pilot body of the WTO agreement, they would be in trouble. And also consider members of the WTO are with a different cultural background, different history. Some may make decisions with detailed reasons, or some not. And with such a holding, unless the administrative body concerned makes very detailed, reasoned, informed decisions, it may be held liable eventually. And that's the part I think will have globalization will have very important impact on administrative decision making. For the US softwood is another case. In that case, the pilot body of the WTO decided that goods may include living trees for ordinary people. Living trees may not be goods. But through the logic given by the WTO appellate body, living trees were goods in so far as subsidies and countervailing measures agreement was concerned. And as such, let's say if a, for a member which is administering such cases concerning anti-dumping or countervailing duties, when they interpret such, a, such rules, such provisions, such words, they have to in, interpret strictly in accordance with the WTO ruling. Other examples are many, like in the case of U.S. steel case concerning China, EC, and so forth, and also the intellectual property case concerning Canada. For instance, Canada used to have a patent for 17 years. After joining the WTO, 
it was forced to extend the patent term to 20 years. That's not just a change of term from 17 to 20 years. It has a lot of repercussions for such patents must be enforced. And then how to enforce the patent right was the issue. And anyone interested to read that case would find out that it is a very, very important case insofar as intellectual property right is concerned. Of course, India was also involved in the intellectual property case as a developing country, and it was also held not to be compatible with the WTO obligations in that case. Having discussed the impact of globalization on administrative bodies, now I want to move to the impact on judiciary. I already mentioned that for the powers or the functions of the judiciary, WTO apparently does not have strict provisions. Yet, through the operation of the WTO agreement, in particular, through the operation of the admission agreement, WTO members do assume obligations in this regard. Judicial review of intellectual property decisions by the court is an example of China. As I said, that when China joined the WTO, its courts did not have the power to review the decisions of the administrative bodies in relation to intellectual property rights. But China committed itself that its courts would be given that power, and it did change its law and enlarge the powers of the judicial bodies. Also, if we look at the WTO agreement, if we look at the bilateral investment treaties, foreign trade agreements, almost all of them contain provisions like fairness, justice, reasonableness, transparency, right? fair and equitable treatment, as I mentioned just now. In practice, how should such terms be interpreted? According to what standard such terms should be interpreted? Without operation of international treaties, without the compulsory requirements of international treaties, national courts would have complete discretion in interpreting their own laws. Yet, with the WTO and other agreements, national courts do not have such complete power anymore. When interpreting such terms, they must take into consideration the understanding at the international level, the understanding 
of the disputing bodies, I'm sorry, understanding of the dispute settlement bodies of the WTO and arbitral tribunals in bilateral investment treaties and so forth. Unless they do so, their decisions may be overruled eventually. In the U.S. shrimp case, the decision of the U.S. Court of International Trade was overruled by the WTO. And at the moment, if we open the case book, the case law book of the WTO, in the WTO holdings, very often we see that they interpret the WTO provisions with very precise meaning of any, every word, even a comma. For instance, they gave, they distinguish the word adequate from sufficient if those two words are used in the same paragraph. They distinguish and give meaning to the phrase relating to, necessary to, imposed for. And once such a holding is given, it will have a direct impact on the interpretation by national courts of the same phrases or words insofar as they are covered, they are relating to the international agreements under which this country or the state is a party. And it is precisely in, the con in such context the judicial powers of sovereign states in today's world are very limited, are subject to review by international bodies. Now I want to turn to the restraints on exercise of sovereignty. I already mentioned that globalization has a direct impact on lawmaking bodies, administrative bodies, and judicial bodies. Also, the process of globalization impacts on the exercise by the sovereign states of their power. Take retaliation, for example, as I stated earlier, that according to traditional sovereignty, state may retaliate any way they wish, so long as they have the power to do so, so long as they are willing to bear the consequence. But now, when they retaliate, for instance, within the system of the WTO, they must get consent of the organization. In other words, they must be organized, uh, sorry, in other words, they must be authorized. And they can only retaliate to the extent permissible. They can only retaliate through 
appropriate authorized means. Yet, at the same time, whilst the exercise of retaliation is subject to restraint, members of the international community have more choices. Previously, small countries would find it very difficult to retaliate others. Now, in the current system, because they may be authorized to take cross-retaliation measures, they are in a stronger position. For instance, when a country cannot retaliate in trade in goods or services, they may decide not to offer protection of intellectual property relating to some other members. And these, these are very directly affected by the globalization. Then, what is the trend? What will happen? It is clear that globalization is irresistible. Whether you like it or not, it will happen. Some say that globalization may, may take a turn, may reverse, that could happen. It is also true that most of the people think globalization will continue, will move to a higher level will go deeper. It will move from the current coverage to further sectors, to new territories. Such territories would include, for instance, environment or sustainable development. Investment is already happening. Competition law, for instance, trade facilitation, government procurement, and so forth. These areas will be covered soon, sooner or later, and they will move, I mean the globalization will move from economic sector to non-economic sectors. They are already affecting the public sectors, including human rights, poverty. In this world of terror, it is quite evident that globalization will move at an even faster pace. This will be possible, and it will grow at a faster pace only and unless developing countries will take a more active role, they will participate more actively in the rulemaking, in the rule enforcement of the international treaties. Also, the globalization will be helped 
by the setting up of regional arrangements. Many people are concerned about the setting up of regional arrangements, conclusion of bilateral free trade agreements, but I don't think we need to worry too much. Like anything else, when multilateral system moves to a certain level, it is bound to stabilize. It is bound to substantiate itself. The way to do so, the why it happens, because not all the countries are developing at the same pace. Not all countries are at the same or even similar economic development stage. And therefore, it takes time for some countries to catch up. Bilateral free trade agreements, bilateral investment treaties, regional arrangements are the tools, are the means for countries who are lagged behind to catch up. And once they catch up, globalization will take a new pace and will move even faster. Then toward what direction this globalization this globalization may lead? I already said that globalization will eventually cover every sector of the economy from the economic sector to non-economic sectors. But insofar as sovereignty is concerned, in the foreseeable future, countries will still guard sovereignty very recklessly, jealously. So sovereignty is unlikely to disappear. Yet, the exercise of sovereignty will be subject to further restraints. The concept of sovereignty will change. People may not pay as much attention to sovereignty as before. This is already happening. The rules, provisions, norms, of international treaties, national laws may become similar. The line dividing international norms and the national norms will becoming will become thinner and thinner. We are already we we already see that it is happening that international norms penetrating into national domestic systems and domestic provisions, standards, concepts are also moving into international treaties, into international norms. So this process will continue.
And in this whole process, it is very likely that international norms will be given more and more compulsory force and effect. And in that way, sovereignty, sovereignty of states will be subject to further restraint. Thank you very much.